Got some key words for you. Predestination, election, total sovereignty, irresistible grace. In some Christian circles, these are almost swear words. These are just some of the terms used to express what have been called the doctrines of grace. And sooner or later, every Christian runs into them. Sooner or later, every Christian finds out that there's this debate raging with, within Christian circles about these things. The lines are drawn. Predestination versus free will. Calvinism versus Arminianism. I remember my first introduction to this debate. I have no real miraculous story to tell. I became a Christian in 2001, and back then I didn't, I didn't know anything, no theology, no doctrine, no nothing. I just was reading my Bible a lot. By the time, though, I came to study theology and I found out about this debate and about these doctrines of grace, I wasn't surprised. I, I didn't find myself having any struggle. It's something I had just, I guess, always believed. It seemed very natural to me. But not all Christians are of the same mind. There's this division amongst even believers as to what's true and not. Some ask, how can there be such a division? Sin, pride, upbringing, presuppositions, preconditions, all sorts of factors go into why two believers come to disagree. Hopefully, though, we can agree that the truth matters and arriving at the truth, searching for the truth matters. And hopefully we can all humble ourselves, not just before one another, but before Scripture. Because what really matters when we're talking about these things is not what you believe. It's not what I believe. It's what the Bible teaches. And that's what we want to find out. All Christians must have a thirst for truth as found in Scripture. Last week we, we began a brand new study of a book of the Bible in First Peter. We just started. We got through the first two verses. But already we encounter this teaching called election. Peter, in his opening greeting, he identifies his audience as the elect, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. He states it's very, very matter of fact. He doesn't stop. He doesn't explain. And if you're already up to speed on this doctrine called election, no big deal. You know, you know what he's talking about. But for others, not stopping here would be like driving past the Grand Canyon and not stopping. And here in First Peter, we're driving past this monumental teaching, and I just, I just can't help but pull us over, stop the car, let's get out, let's look around for a little bit, then we'll hop in the car next week, get back with First Peter. That's what we're going to do today. Even though we just started First Peter, we're already taking a break, just one week. And I want us to stop and take a closer look at what are called the doctrines of grace. Now, I have to admit, it might get a little heavy today, a little dense. It's not going to be your normal sermon here. We normally take a couple of verses, go through them verse by verse, explain, apply. But we're going to get into it today. You need to pay attention and, and really seek to learn what the Bible teaches here. And we can all humble ourselves before Scripture and dig. If you want diamonds, you got to dig. So today we're going to do some digging. Now, some of you, I, I know, some of you may already be lost. You're thinking, what, what is he talking about? What is Calvinism? What is Arminianism? What's election? What is he talking about? And so I want to make sure no one gets left behind. And really, to help everyone frame this discussion that we're going to have this morning, I want to bring you up to speed. I want to give you some essential background info. So we'll start off with some background. We'll get everyone on the same boat. 
in theology, the study of scripture and what it teaches, there's something called the five points of Calvinism. And they represent five major doctrines of grace. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And these five points are associated with the Reformation theologian named John Calvin. Hence, Calvinism. That's why they're called Calvinism. In reality, though, these five points of Calvinism didn't originate with Calvin. They originated with his followers. So here's the story. Here's how it happened. There is this Dutch theologian, this guy named Jacob Herman. You probably know him by the Latin form of his last name, Arminius. And he came to oppose these doctrines of grace being taught by the reformers. He didn't like it. He favored the humanist teachings of this guy named Erasmus. Anyway, Arminius died in 1609. But one year later, his followers, who later were termed the Arminians, they organized a protest. Because back then, there was no separation between church and state. And so in Holland, the nation of Holland, they they officially accepted the reformed position of sovereign grace. It was like their country's doctrinal statement. And Arminius' followers, they didn't like this, so they presented the Dutch parliament with a formal protest called a remonstrance, don't worry about that, in 1610. And their protest had five major points. The five points of Arminianism that came first. A few years later, in 1618, theologians gathered in the city of Dort to discuss and examine these five points of Arminianism in light of scripture. There's 154 sessions, that's a lot, over seven months, 84 theologians. And in conclusion, these theologians came to entirely reject the teaching and theology of Arminius' followers. And they formed a rebuttal, point by point. And their rebuttal, their response to the five points of Arminianism came to be known as the five points of Calvinism. Now keep in mind, Calvin, he had been dead for 50 years at this point. Granted, this reform teaching was reflected in Calvin's writings, but he never organized his theology in this way. He never debated with people who would be called Arminians. It wasn't something he was doing. Nevertheless, from 1618 on, the five points of Calvinism has, has, have stood in opposition to the five points of Arminianism, even to this day. And today, we don't have time to go over all these five points of either side. And for that, you have to come to our Sunday night study. We're going to do all this in greater detail. But to keep things general, the debate centers on the will of man. Is man basically good or not? Does man have the ability to choose God on his own or not? Does man have an absolutely free will or does God influence man's will? Are some people elected or predestined unto salvation? And if so, how does that work? These are some of the questions addressed by this debate. It's nothing new. Years before Calvin and Arminius, there, were, there was Luther and Erasmus going back and forth. And then centuries before that, back in the 5th century, you had Augustine and Pelagius going back and forth. The same issues. Today in America, in Christianity, the debate continues. Early in America's history, Calvinism was dominant. 
But starting in the 19th century, Calvinism fell out of favor because of the rise of the individual in America. The importance of the self, the power of the self took center stage, and that fits right in with Arminian thinking. Although in recent years, it's interesting, Calvinism has had a a large resurgence, especially among the younger generation. So that's a little history, a little background, trying to get you up to speed on what's going on here. We've got two sides. There's people called the Calvinists, or that's a label, who believe in the bondage of the will, God's sovereign grace, predestination, unconditional election. And you have this other group called the Arminians who don't believe those things. These are essentially the debate lines, and hopefully this helps frame the picture for you. So where do we go from here? Where Where are we going with this? Like I said, if you want the full treatment, that's on Sunday nights. We're doing our basic Bible doctrine series. We're going to go through this. But right now, we don't have time to cover all these issues. I just want to focus on one thing, because we can't go all over the place here. One thing for this morning, the doctrine of election. Have you heard of it before? The doctrine of election. Not like voting election, but it's it's spelled the same way. Why do I choose election? Well, it's one of, if not the dividing issue between these two groups. The greatest amount of controversies attached to this thing called election, as well as the greatest amount of misunderstanding. Another major reason I want to cover election, though, is because it's right here in 1 Peter. We, we just started 1 Peter, and right away we get confronted with this doctrine of election. It comes up again and again in Scripture, so now is a good time to, to talk about it, to preach on it. So today, we're going to take a much closer look at the doctrine of election. But I, just want, I don't just want to tell you about it. I want to show it to you. I want you to see it for yourselves from Scripture. I want to show you the doctrine of election from Scripture, its meaning, its basis, its application. And I want to show you how the Arminian understanding of election really falls short in many ways. I'm not not the biggest fan of labels, but that being said, the teachings aligned under the label of Calvinism prove themselves to be true to Scripture. Like I said, you're probably already getting this. It's going to be a, a heavier sermon. It's a thicker, denser meteor sermon this morning, but follow along if it helps. Take some notes to keep you tracking. And here we go. I want to start off with an initial definition of election. It's a good place to start. I'm going to give you an initial definition of this thing called election. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Election is an act of God whereby before the foundation of the world, he chooses some people for salvation. Election is an act of God whereby before the foundation of the world, he chooses some people for salvation. It's simplified definition. We're going to come back. We're going to expand on it a little bit. But this will get us started. Election is an act of God whereby before the foundation of the world, he chooses some people for salvation. Now, since we're talking terminology, let me throw a predestination out there for you. Have you heard of that one? Another big word, predestination. What is it? To be honest with you, for, for most purposes, you can pretty much treat predestination and election to be synonymous for most purposes. I mean, you could say that God predestines some to salvation or that God elects some to salvation. Basically mean the same thing. 
If you really want to get precise, predestination looks at things more holistically, and it includes God's choosing of some people called election and his passing over of other people called reprobation. We're not going to get into that today. And so for our purposes, you can pretty much think of election and predestination as being essentially the same thing, synonymous. That's a little terminology. We've got to get that out of the way or really under our belt. But now we come to the million-dollar question, the question we have to ask. Does the Bible actually teach this? Does the Bible actually teach that God elects or predestines some people to salvation even before they're born? Does it actually teach that? The answer is yes, but don't take my word for it. I want you to see for yourself. So grab your Bible, follow along. We're going to take a quick tour of what the Bible says about this thing called election. So let's start off. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We're going to hopefully rattle through these, not spending a lot of time on any one, because I want to cover a lot of ground and just show you the weight of Scripture on this topic. What does the Bible say about it? Acts chapter 13. Paul just finished preaching, and we get down to verse 48, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, essentially the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. How many people believed? As many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. That's pretty clear. Obviously, God was the one doing the appointing. But as many as had been appointed. Romans chapter 9. Like I said, we're going to move through these. Romans chapter 9. Just a few pages to the right. These will be in order, so you just have to turn to the right each time. Here in Romans chapter 9, Paul, he's making this talk or argument about these two lines, the physical, the spiritual, believers, unbelievers. And he's using these two guys from the Old Testament, Jacob and Esau, to illustrate these two lines. So Romans 9, look down at verse 10. And not only this, he says, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father, our father Isaac, For though the twins were, what, not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as I have written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What's he saying? It's that before they were even born, before they had done anything, God had selected one of them for his blessing and one of them for not. Ephesians chapter 1. Keep moving to the right. Ephesians chapter 1. Here we have another, perhaps the clearest text on the issue. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 3. He's just starting off this letter. He says, Blessed be the God... And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us. It doesn't say we chose him. It says he chose us in him when? 
When did God choose us? What does it say? Before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. That's just talking about salvation. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. What's this according to? According to our foreseen faith, according to our foreseen goodness, according to our foreseen merit. What's this according to that God chose us? Verse 5, according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of what? Of our faith, of our goodness, of our merit. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Is that clear? And for us, it's just passive. We're just receiving this. And God is choosing, God is selecting, God is predestining, God is blessing, God is bringing us to salvation. When it comes to this doctrine of election, in Ephesians 1, it's like a bullhorn verse. It's like he's shouting this truth through a bullhorn, and it's coming through loud and clear. And look, you don't need a Bible doctrine to understand this. You just have to do some Bible reading and see what it says. And to the contrary, you need to do some serious exegetical gymnastics to make this seem like anything else. One more for you. Keep turning to the right to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, not far. And get to chapter 2, verse 13. Second Thessalonians 2.13. He writes, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. And how clear is that? God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Verse 14, it was for this he called you. You didn't call upon him. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's so many more. Colossians 3.12, to those who have been elect. 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says he does all things for the sake of those who are elect. Titus 1.1, he's writing for the faith of those elect. Over and over it comes up. These aren't even all the verses. The doctrine of election, it's plain to see. It's just right here. The Bible teaches that God, before the foundation of the world, chose some people for salvation. He predestined certain people to be saved. Now get this. Talked earlier about these two camps, right? The Calvinists, the Arminians, right? Which of these two believes in election and predestination? The answer is both. Both groups believe in election and predestination, Calvinists and Arminians. Let me explain. Side note first, there are some wacky Arminians who teach crazy things, and there are some wacky Calvinists who teach crazy things. I'm not talking about either of them. I'm not concerned about the fringes and the people who go way overboard. But genuine, scholarly Arminians who believe the Bible is God's word, they do believe in election and predestination. 
All those verses we just read, they, they know you can't get around them. The Bible is very clear that it teaches election and predestination. What's the difference? The difference comes down to how God predestines some people to salvation. The difference comes down to how God makes his choice. That's the real difference. The Reformed or the Calvinistic view, it's, it's called unconditional election. Unconditional election, which is what we believe here. What is the basis of God's choice, his predestining choice? According to unconditional election, the basis is God's perfect will and nothing else. The basis is God's will and nothing else. God does not elect people to salvation based on some condition that they meet, hence unconditional. There's no conditions attached. It's just God's choice. God elects people irrespective of who they are or what they do. God's election is based on his perfect will. However, the Arminian view is different. It is called conditional election. Unconditional, now there's this conditional election. And so what is the basis of God's predestining choice? According to the Arminian view, before the foundation of the world, God uses his foreknowledge to kind of look down through the corridors of time and find out who would believe in him of their own free will, and then he chooses them or he predestines them in return. In other words, God foresees all the people who would choose him of their own free will, and he just chooses them back. He elects them, and those are the elect. That's how they explain all those verses we read, talking about election or predestination. This is called conditional election because God's choice, it's based, it's conditioned upon a person's foreseen faith. I'm already going to stop for a recap because I want to make sure no one gets lost. Some of you, you've heard this before. This is not new. It's easy, fine. But for others, this may be new. This may be confusing. So here's a recap. The Bible teaches something called election or predestination. Election is an act of God whereby before the foundation of the world, he chooses some people for salvation. And in reality, believers, all believers believe this. Calvinists or Arminians, the two sides, they both believe in election. Both believe that God predestines some people to salvation. The real difference between the two is, is how God does it. How does God make his choice? According to the Calvinist view, God chooses people according to his own will and nothing else. God's choice of a person, it's not conditioned upon anything in them. And this is why it's called unconditional election. That's one side. According to the Arminian view, God chooses people according to a foreknowledge of their faith. God looks forward into time. He finds out who will choose him of their own free will. And then he elects them in response. God's choice of a person is conditioned upon their foreseen faith. And this is why it's called conditional election. So that's where we're at. That's where we've come. Hopefully you're tracking. I said it's going to be a lot today. Our next move now is to, is to take this deeper into this question of how. How does God make his choice? Because that's what divides. How does God predestine people? Is it according to his own will and nothing else? Or is it according to his foreknowledge of a person's faith? Which is it? Well, let's talk about it. Let's start with this idea of foreknowledge. 
foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is taught in the Bible. In fact, we saw it last week in Peter's introduction. He, he called out his audience as being elect. But he also, in verse 2, says they are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So foreknowledge, it's a biblical word. We just have to ask, what does it mean? Well, the word for foreknowledge itself, we'll start there. In the Greek, it's prognosis. And doctors still use the word today, the prognosis, or as a verb, prognosco. It's formed by taking the word for before, pra, and the word for knowledge, gnosko, and cramming them together. Prognosko, it means to know beforehand. Previous knowledge, that's what it means. However, when the biblical writers use this word, it means something more than just simply advanced knowledge. What do I mean by this? Well, if you want to understand the biblical concept of foreknowledge, you have to understand the biblical concept of knowledge. Knowledge when it comes to people. And I'll explain this. You see, in the Bible, to know a person, it doesn't mean you just know facts about them or data. That's not what it means when we say in the Bible, we know someone. Rather, to know someone means you have a relationship with them. That's how the word is used. And when the Bible speaks about God knowing us, or us knowing God, it's talking about a saving relationship. I want to show this to you. It's, it's this important. I want to show this to you. So now turn backwards with me to John chapter 10. This won't take long. Just John chapter 10. You know the teaching, Christ. He says, I am the good shepherd. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Let's take a closer look at what he says. Notice every time he says the word translated know, to know in your, in your Bible, every time it's this word, gnosko, which means to know. Gnosko, there it is. Verse 14, John 10, verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know, gnosko, I know my own. And my own know, same word, me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, gnosko, I lay down my life for the sheep. So what's he saying here? Is he saying that he has an intellectual knowledge of his sheep? That he knows data about his sheep? No. He's saying that he has a relationship with them. That's what he means when he says, I know my sheep. He has a relationship with them. Look down at verse 26, John 10, verse 26. He says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, gnosko, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. It's it's very clear. When God knows us, and we know him in the Bible, it's not talking about just data or facts. It's talking about relationship, a saving relationship. The flip side of this is in Matthew 7.23. Jesus, he pronounces judgment on all these false believers. What does he say? He says to them, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Gnosko. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Why is he judging them? Does this mean Jesus never intellectually knew who they were? No, he's saying, I never knew you. I never had a saving relationship with you. So biblically, what is knowledge? In the, con- in the context of God knowing us, 
It's not data. It's not facts. It's a saving relationship. If you understand this, what do you think for knowledge is in the context of God foreknowing us? Do you think it's God knowing intellectual data and facts about us in advance? No. Rather, biblical foreknowledge, prognosco, is relationship in advance. It's the same relational language. When God foreknows someone, it does not mean he just knows their future. That's not what the word means. It means he has set his favor upon them in advance. It means he has expressed his relationship with this person in advance. Biblical foreknowledge is God's active, eternal intention to bless. As one commentator says, it's God's favorable regard for people as part of his deliberate plans and purposes. It's not just knowledge in advance, it's a relationship in advance. Now, if you're with me, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Some of you know these verses, 28, 29, 30. Romans 8, 29, it's actually the main verse, really the only verse, that Arminians use to try and teach their warped view of foreknowledge from the Bible. Remember, they define foreknowledge as God just looking into the future, finding out what people will do, what, what they will believe, and then choosing them in return. To them, foreknowledge is just knowledge in advance. And they point to verse 29 as proof. Well, look at verse 29, Romans 8, 29. For he says, those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would become the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So they say here, look, there it is. See, God first, he foreknew people, then he predestined people. So he foreknew their faith, and then he, in response, saw their faith and just called them predestined after that. That's what they say. What's the problem with this? Well, they fail to read this verse in its context. What, is the, what, is, what word does verse 29 start with? What's the first word? For. Well, what does that tell you? It's marking a connection with this verse and what came before. So you can't just pluck this one out. What does Paul say in verse 29? He says, for those whom he foreknew. For those whom he foreknew. Well, who are these people? Who are these people who are described as whom God foreknew? Who are they? Well, they are described in verse 28. How are they described in verse 28? Are they described as people who chose God? Are they described as those who God chose because he foresaw their faith, how are they described in verse 28? Well, let's read verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew, dot, dot, dot. Do you see the connection? It doesn't say to those who... Exercise faith and God knew in advance. What does it mean to be foreknown here? It means you were called according to God's purpose. You were called according to his purpose, not yours. It does not mean you were called according to your foreseen faith. That idea, it's just entirely 
foreign to the context. It's nowhere to be found. In fact, that idea that God chooses people based on foreseeing their faith, it's absolutely foreign in the entire Bible. There's not a single verse that ever describes God as looking down the corridors of time, foreseeing our faith, and then choosing those who choose him first. There's not a single verse that even gets close to that. There's not a single verse that even hints at our faith as being the condition of God's choosing us. No verse tells us that God conditions his choice based on foreseeing our faith. There just aren't any. Again, you know, we're tackling this question. How does God predestine? How does he make his electing choice? Foreknowledge is involved. It's just that foreknowledge is akin to predestination. It's God's setting his blessing, his favor upon someone in advance. God is not looking forward in time and choosing those who choose him. It may sound interesting, it's just not in the Bible. Instead, how does God choose? How does he decide who, who's, who he's going to choose? It's simply according to his perfect will. That's it. What did we just read in Romans 8.28? What was this choice up to? To those who were called according to whose purpose? To according to his purpose. I'll read a couple more for you. You don't have to turn to these, but Romans 9.11. We read this one before. It says, For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, but so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who called, he chose one over the other. Whose purpose? God's. Whose choice? God's. Whose plan? God's. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of our will? No, according to the kind intention of his will. It was his will. 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Whose purpose? Whose grace? His. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's what Jesus said, John 15, 16. Does it get much clearer? He tells his disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And there it is. Before the foundation of the world, how did God make his choice? What was the basis for his election? It was not his foreknowledge of man's faith. It was simply according to his own hidden perfect will. So now we're able to arrive at a better understanding of this thing called election. Earlier I gave you a simple definition, remember? Election is an act of God whereby before the foundation of the world, he chooses some people for salvation. But now we're able to get more precise and a better definition here. Election is an act of God whereby before the foundation of the world, he chooses some people for salvation, not according to anything foreseen in them, but entirely according to his sovereign will. And that's how we round off this definition. Not according to anything foreseen in them, but entirely according to his sovereign will. This is the doctrine of election or... You could say unconditional election. So here we are. We've come a long way. If you're, if you're tracking, be proud of yourself. You've come through some substantial stuff here. And I hope now that this doctrine of election, it's less confusing to you, less foreign, seems less distant. Hopefully it's starting to make sense to you. 
and that you see the weight of Scripture on this issue. We're not quite done, though. The debate's not quite over. He's, you remember this group called Arminians? When they're presented with all these Bible verses on how God chooses according to his will, and not according to his forcing faith, they stick to their guns. They hold on to this idea of God choosing according to his foreknowledge because their entire system is built on it. If the Armenian concept of foreknowledge fails, their entire system fails. And so they just hold on to it. They have to. They would be left completely unable to explain election and predestination otherwise. If their view of foreknowledge were wrong, this would be a death blow to Arminianism if their foreknowledge was wrong. So now I want to take things a little bit further. Earlier I said I wanted to help you understand the doctrine of election. Hopefully we've accomplished some of that. Hopefully you're starting to get it. Now I want to weigh in on this debate between Calvinists and Arminians. Like I said before, if if their view of foreknowledge can't hold water, then it's game over. And so now I want to spend a little time to show you how their view of foreknowledge is about as watertight as a cheese grater. And there are several critical problems with the Arminian view of foreknowledge. For the sake of time, I want to give you three. Three reasons why the Arminian view of foreknowledge is wrong. Three reasons why the Arminian view of foreknowledge is wrong. Number one, this view of foreknowledge wrongly elevates man's free will. This view of foreknowledge wrongly elevates man's free will. And this is getting at the heart of the problem. All the way back, they've taken this concept of man's absolute free will and they've elevated it above everything else. They've made man's absolute free will, which means it's not influenced by anything, and they've made it supreme. It's the governing idea of scripture, man's free will. They even made it that God himself would never intervene or influence man's will because even God has a supreme regard for man's freedom. What's the problem with this? Just that it's not found in scripture. I mean, it sounds good philosophically, but what are we doing today? What does the Bible teach? The Bible makes God's sovereignty, not man's will, the overriding controlling factor of the universe. Never does the Bible elevate man's will or even suggest that God sits with his hands tied, unable to affect the will of man. And to the contrary, the Bible describes God as absolutely supreme. He is the potter, we are the clay. He's the creator, we are the creature. And no creature can ever thwart his will. Now here's the bottom line, here's the problem. When you make something the foundation of your theology, and that thing is not in the Bible, you've got issues. I mean, you're going to have problems. And this is why the entire system of Arminianism, it's bankrupt. It has a foundation of sand. That's the first reason. Second reason, this view of foreknowledge would result in zero people getting saved. Ever think about that? This view of foreknowledge would result in zero people getting saved. Think about this. Here's another huge problem with their view of foreknowledge. They completely misunderstand the fallen nature of man. Armenians believe that man is basically good. That's a sin problem. It's not that bad. It doesn't affect his will. 
And they believe that man can, on his own, choose God. If he wanted to, he can choose God. Once again, it's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that man is not basically good, but fallen, corrupt, depraved. And this applies to all people, without exception, after the fall. And as a result of the fall, our very natures, which includes our will, become sinful and corrupt. We become sinners. We are born sinners. And this affects our will. And because of sin, man loses the ability to choose God. So here's how it would work. Let's just pretend that God chose people based on his foreknowledge. Let's pretend it were true. You know, before the foundation of the world, before creation even began, God looks forward into time and he finds out how many people would choose him. If God did this, if he actually did that, what would he see? How many people would he foresee choosing him of their own free will? Zero. Zero. Left to their own sinful, rebellious, corrupt, and depraved natures, absolutely no person could or would choose him willfully. If God did not intervene, nobody would be saved. This is so huge. It's one of the most fundamental problems with Arminianism. There are none righteous, not one. All are corrupt, and this affects man's ability and desire to choose God. If God didn't step in, nobody would ever choose him willfully. Now, people always stop me here and say, wait, okay, what about free will? I mean, don't we have free will? It sure seems like we do. What about free will? Do we have free will? The answer is yes. But let me explain. Yes, but I have to condition that. See, right now, you are free to do whatever you are able to do. No one disputes that. You can do anything you are able to do. It's just that Calvinists understand that after the fall, your free will is limited. It is enslaved to sin. And so there are really certain things you can't do. And if you want to get really precise, the debate here, it's not about free will. It's about limited ability. If you're taking notes, write that down. Limited ability. That's the issue. After the fall, people have limited ability. Their wills are free, but... At the same time, not. They're restricted by their limited ability, and hence we could call them bound. It's not as free as Adam's was. I'll give you an example. Let's say right now, I told you, jump to the moon. You right now, jump to the moon. Could you do it? No. But wait, I thought you had free will. Doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. Well, no. I mean, because your free will is still limited by your ability. You don't have the physical ability to jump to the moon, so you can't really choose to do that. And the same is true spiritually. After the fall, your ability to choose God is limited. In fact, your ability to do anything good before God is limited. And when I say limited, I mean you can't do it. You have no ability. For the unbeliever, he can do whatever he wants within his ability It's just that his ability no longer includes being able to choose God. It's just something he can't do anymore. And so back on track. If Arminian foreknowledge is true, and God looked forward into time to find out who would choose him, because of our fallen natures, because of our limited ability, he would see zero people choosing him. 
The Armenian idea of foreknowledge does not take into account just how much sin affects our will and our ability. And for this reason, it's false. Zero people would be saved. I'll finish up here. Last one, number three. This view of foreknowledge doesn't get God off the hook. This view of foreknowledge doesn't get God off the hook. What do I mean by that? Well, I said before, one of the main reasons they created this idea of foreknowledge is to uphold the will of man, the free will of man, right? Well, another reason they created this idea is to uphold the love of God. The love of God. You see, they think that God's love is at stake when it comes to this idea of sovereign election versus foreknowledge. And they developed their theology in large part to get God off the hook for sending people to hell. Here's how it works. This is what they reason. Now, if God is good and unconditional election is true, then why wouldn't God elect everybody? Right? Everyone asks that. Why wouldn't God just elect everybody? Since God does, in fact, not save everyone, Armenians say this makes God to be terribly unloving, and therefore they reject this view of unconditional election in order to uphold the love of God. And instead, their reason that this idea of God only choosing those who choose him first gets God off the hook for sending people to hell because what God's just choosing those who chose him first. It makes man responsible, not God. Now first, let me just say, in Calvinism, you better believe man is still responsible. Every single time a person is judged in Scripture, who's to blame? God's election? No, it's you. It's your fault. It's your sin. You're responsible. But the point I'm making here is that this idea of foreknowledge, it doesn't even get God off the hook and uphold his loving nature as Arminians see it. It doesn't even do what they thought it would do. Let me explain. Again, let's pretend this happened. You know, before God created, he looked down the corridors of time to find out who would believe in him, and then he elected them in response. Pretend that were true. Now, according to the Armenian view, when God did this, what did he see? Well, he saw that some people chose him, but that the vast majority of people, billions and billions of people, rejected him and therefore would go to hell. That's what he foresaw, right? That's how our world is playing out. So God, in his foreknowledge, knew that if if he created this universe, billions of people would still go to hell. I'll just ask a simple question, then. Why did God still choose to create this universe? He didn't have to, right? He could have created any universe he wanted. So why didn't God create a universe where, you know, only a million people freely chose to go to hell? Or maybe why didn't God create a universe where zero people went to hell? Why didn't he do that? You see, the fact that God knew so many people would perish and he still chose to create this universe makes him just as responsible as if he had simply elected some to life and others not in the first place. It's the same thing. And you could turn the Arminian argument on its head and and accuse their God of being unloving for choosing to create a universe when he knew so many would perish. It would have been better for that God to not create at all. This view of foreknowledge doesn't make God any more supposedly loving. It does not get God off the hook. Understand this, though, according to Calvinism or according to the Bible, God doesn't need you to get him off any hooks. He's just fine on his own. 
his character of being supremely loving, it is so crystal clear in Scripture that it's, it's a no-brainer. The fact that any are elect and saved at all is an expression of his love. But the point I'm making here is that the Arminian view of foreknowledge just doesn't cut it. It's unbiblical, it's illogical, it's untrue. It doesn't even accomplish what it sets out to accomplish, namely upholding the free will of man and the love of God. Armenians get man wrong, they get sin wrong, they get God wrong. So what do you expect? Of course they're going to get election wrong. At the end of the day, it's just not taught in scripture. So that's it. End of story. The system and way of thinking must be abandoned by all who believe the Bible. Election is an act of God whereby before the foundation of the world, he chooses some people for salvation, not according to anything foreseen in them, but entirely according to his sovereign will. And this is the doctrine of unconditional election. Come a long way. We've traveled through a lot of serious theology this morning. And so again, I hope you understand this truth and how serious it is. And my prayer is that you've seriously grown in your knowledge and appreciation for this biblical truth. And with just a few more minutes left, you have just enough time to ask one of the most important questions we can ask when it comes to this doctrine. Two words. So what? We haven't asked that yet. So what? Okay, the Bible teaches this. So what? Why should we care? Why is this important? That's an important question to ask. How, why does this matter? I'm glad you asked. The doctrine of election, it is a, such a vital and important election or doctrine to know in Scripture. It, it helps us know who God is. It shows us the supremacy of God and how glorious and big he is. The God of the Bible is a big God. He's not a small God. Understanding election teaches us about salvation. It lets us know we can't do it on our own. We can't save ourselves on our own. We can't save other people on our own. We need God to intervene. Doctrine of election, it's also extremely practical. One of the biggest applications is evangelism. And some people actually think that the doctrine of election removes the need to evangelize. They reason like this. Well, if God God has chosen who he's going to save then he's going to save them no matter what. So why do I need to go tell people or share the gospel? But the exact opposite is true. Think about this. Election makes successful evangelism possible. Election makes successful evangelism possible. Consider the opposite. If it were up to us to go out and save people, how many people would be saved? Zero. If God didn't intervene and we were left to ourselves, evangelism would be impossible. But it is because of election that we can successfully evangelize. I'll be brief with this, but Paul, missionary journeys, he shows up, he gets to Corinth. And God speaks to him at Corinth. And he says, just so you know, Paul, I have many elect people in this city. And we normally, we have no idea who the elect are. That's not the purpose of the doctrine. But in this one instance, God revealed to Paul, he says, I've got many people in this city. How did Paul respond to that? Did he say, oh, well, God has elect people in Corinth. I don't really need to be here then. I'm going to move on. I don't need to talk to them. Or I'm just going to go relax. That's not what he did. Instead, he stayed there for a year and a half. And that's the longest time he spent in any one place except Ephesus. Why? Why did he stay there for so long? 
precisely because God had so many elect people there. Paul is going to evangelize and minister to everyone so that the elect might come to salvation. So if you want a huge application of what we talked about this morning, evangelize. Leave here and go tell people the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. We have no idea who the elect are. That's not important. That's not the goal. But the point is to go blanket the entire earth with the gospel that the elect might come to salvation. This is the work of God in his sovereignty, and he's given it to us. And an election enables it to be successful, to be possible. So you want to apply election, then talk about evangelism. Another huge application is encouragement. We talked about this last week in First Peter, so it won't be long, but to those who've been called, to those who have been elected, you can take great encouragement. If you've been chosen by God, you're safe, you're secure. Those in the Father's hands cannot escape. You may suffer, you may go through trials, you may go through tribulations, but nothing can interfere with God's good plan for his chosen ones. And that's such an encouragement to hold fast in the difficult times and to endure and remain faithful to the Lord because he will bring you to glory. For those who believe, you've been chosen. And if you've been chosen, nothing is going to stop God from bringing you to glory. And that's an encouraging truth. Last major application, we'll end with this. The doctrine of election gives us a major reason to glorify God. If you want to apply, once again, everything we've learned, one word, worship. Worship. Worship God, the God who chose you before time began to bless you and be in a relationship with you. There's no room for boasting here. We didn't do anything to earn or deserve this. And we have to confess, we have no idea why God chose us and not someone else. Nevertheless, we can thank, worship, praise, and glorify God for his choice. God has chosen some vessels to experience glory, and and far from boasting in this, let us simply worship the God who chose us with our lips and our lives. I'll close by reading for you. You don't have to turn here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Just, Just listen along. Paul writes to believers, he says, For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, that's us, to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world, that's us, to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So let's accept this doctrine of election and boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we, we do that now. We, we boast in you. We glory. We worship. We praise you. This doctrine is it's dense. It's heavy. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot in there, Lord. But you've nonetheless chosen to reveal it to us because it tells us about you and your plan, your purposes. It tells us about us and our 
weakness and inability. And again, we confess we have no idea why we've been chosen. But nonetheless, for all those who call Christ Lord, who have repented of their sins, who have turned to Jesus Christ in faith alone, we can worship you for choosing us, for loving us, and for giving your son Jesus to die on the cross for our redemption, to bring us to yourself. You have a plan. That plan is good, and we can take great comfort in that. You've also called us to evangelize, to go reach the world, so that those whom you have chosen might come to you. You're sovereign. All things are in your hand, yet you still call us to work. So I pray for all of us now that we would not just sit on our hands, filling our heads with this doctrine of election, but that we might use our hands and get to work, serve the God who has done so much for us and who calls us to get to work. We do marvel at what we've learned today, and we we worship the, the big God we have, your mighty, sovereign God. We are nothing before you, yet you've chosen to know us. So what can we do but cover our mouth and, and just worship? We worship you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.